everyone, and welcome to Antibuddies. This is our 17th episode in our Immunology 101 series, which is a little segment where we teach you some immunology. Joining me today is my co-host, Jatin. How's it going, Jet? It's good. How are you, Natalie? Oh, life is good. Life is good. Uh, this is a lovely Saturday morning. So do you know what we should do today? Uh, we should talk about T-cell activation. Of course, because that's what all normal people do on their Saturday morning. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So before we get into that, uh, can you help me review some of the things that our audience should know about T-cells, like before we start going on about T-cells? Sure. Ah, it's been, it's been a while since we did that, so let me get back into our form. Mm -hmm. um, here is a primer on T-cells, which includes some of the information from our previous episodes, if our audience has missed that. T-cells can express these two proteins on their surface, CD4 or CD8, based on which we either call them helper T-cells or cytotoxic T-cells. The CD4 and CD8 are surface molecules that act as co-receptors to the T-cell receptor, which brings me to the T-cell receptor. The T-cell receptor, or TCR, is a unique receptor on a T-cell that can recognize peptides presented on an MHC molecule. The TCR stays with the CD3 molecule, which is another surface protein that is expressed by T-cells, uh, along with the TCR and the CD3. Both of these things are together called the T-cell receptor complex. Now, I've mentioned about MHC molecules, so let's look into what are MHC molecules. MHC molecules are surface proteins that look like bowls or cups. Inside this cup, they hold peptides. Typically, class 1 MHCs present self-peptides, while class 2 MHCs present non-self-peptides. For fighting pathogens, the class 2 MHCs, the ones that hold non-self-peptides, are quite important, and the group of cells that present these surface proteins are called antigen-presenting cells, and in short, they're also called APCs. Almost all the cells of our body express class 1 MHCs, and it's this class 1 MHC that helps us distinguish our own cells from others. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And I mean, also, if you're infected with like a virus or something, and you start throwing up something gross onto your class 1 MHC, then, you know, your immune system knows that that guy's got to die. So, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's start let's start our discussion. Um if we go back to one of our previous episodes on T cell development, you'd remember that CD4 positive and CD8 positive T cells leave the thymus as mature and naive cells. These cells have not yet encountered any antigen and then therefore they're going to be found in constant movement through the blood lymph and lymph nodes. And why are these cells in constant circulation? Well, naive T cells are in constant recirculation to increase the chances of finding their cognate antigen. That's like their whole purpose. So if a naive T cell does encounter an APC that is presenting its cognate antigen, the cell will stop its migration and initiate a series of processes that will end with the activation of that T cell. So... Early research indicated that this actually takes multiple signals. It's called a two-signal hypothesis. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you got early it. Re yeah, <laughs> early research has indicated 
that this takes a couple of signals. That's why it's called the two-signal hypothesis. What we call signal one is the TCR recognizing its cognate antigen. And then what we call signal two is the engagement of co-stimulatory molecules, such as CD28, which we'll talk about. Later, it was described that there's actually a third signal that you need for proper T-cell activation, and this is provided by cytokines that help drive differentiation and T-cell proliferation. Yeah, this is quite an important topic because understanding these three signals is one of the first steps to learning about T-cell biology. That includes mentioning not only what's happening around the cell, but also what's happening inside the cell. And when I say inside the cell, I mean the the whole shenanigans of proteins that are relaying signals from the surface to the nucleus and getting the job done. Absolutely. So let's start describing signal one in T-cell activation, and that's the TCR signaling. So this process begins with the activation of a cytoplasmic protein called LIK, spelled L-C-K, which is a tyrosine kinase. When a TCR interacts with uh, a MHC peptide complex on the surface of an APC, the co-receptor CD4 or CD8 kind of swings around and helps stabilize that interac interaction, and it also brings LIC closer to the TCR-CD3 complex. LIC can then phosphorylate the tyrosines, that's why it's called a tyrosine kinase, in a region of the CD3 tail called ITANs. These phosphorylated ITANs act as the new docking sites for proteins with SH2 domains. Hold on a second. There's just so many terms in that, in that <laughs> whole paragraph. Okay, let's start with what are SH2 domains and what the hell is ITAM? I know, you have to go back to cell biology now. So <laughs> the SH2 domain is, it's, you know, a region of the protein that allows interaction with phosphorylated residues. And phosphorylation is a way that the cell can kind of turn on and off proteins. It's, it's one of the regulatory mechanisms that we have. So many proteins that are part of cell signaling pathways have this domain. So coming to ITAMs, that stands for immunotyrosine-based activation motif. Now, this is a conserved sequence of amino acids with tyrosines in specific places, and tyrosines can then get phosphorylated by LIC. Uh, I see. So the LIC kinase phosphorylates the tyrosines be belonging to the ITAM region in the uh, CD3 tail, and this allows proteins that have the SS2 domains to interact with this tail because now this tail is phosphorylated. That's, you've got it exactly right. So one of these SH2-containing proteins is called ZAP70, and that's another T-cell-specific tyrosine kinase. ZAP70 is recruited to the ITAM via the phosphorylated ITAM. Then it's phosphorylated and activated by LIC. Since the ZAP has been phosphorylated, it then becomes activated and will be able to phosphorylate the next proteins in the pathway. So we get like some, some signal amplification. Since we are teaching immunology in the podcast form, format, it's a little hard to explain cell signaling without spending like hours on it. So instead of talking about specific proteins, let's look at the big picture and the important concepts. So far, we have seen that a set of phosphorylation events are used to bring proteins closer to each other and to activate each other. This is a common concept in like pretty much any cell signaling pathway. Yeah, that's true. So since we're not going uh, on too much details for each of the proteins, what are some of these big events that are taking place inside the cell that we should know about? Uh, so 
you're going to use a series of phosphorylation events to bring that signal down to the nucleus. So this is going to drive the activation of a transcription factor called NFAT, which I love because it means nuclear factor of activated T cells, which is pretty straightforward, right? Um, this is a transcription factor that will start a transcription pro program that will prepare the T cell for some important changes. Uh, can you describe this term transcription program? Because when I hear it, I feel like I know what it means, but not really. So what does this mean exactly? Mm, mm, yeah. Well, let's say you're you're planning to go for a hike. Like you wouldn't just leave the house in your pajamas, right? Unless, you know, you want to do that. But <laughs> you <laughs> should take a rain check, put on your hiking gear, make sure it's sunny before leaving, you know, prepare. So all this prep will make your experience a really good one. And so similarly, cells utilize specific transcription programs to make systemic changes that will make the cell prepared for what is about to come. So activated T cells need more energy. So you have to initiate transcription of, pro of proteins that could upregulate a lot of metabolic genes to keep up with the activated cells' energy demands. I see. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What other transcription factors and programs are activated apart from NFAT? Well, okay, so we got NFAT, and then we've also got nuclear factor kappa beta or NF kappa B that gets activated, which also prepares the activated cell. Third important transcription factor is not a single, but a set of kinases called MAP kinases. And uh, MAP stands for mitogen activation protein kinase. So it's the MAP kinases that help the cell proliferate and make more of itself, which is a really important part of T cell activation because you need to, you need to upregulate this, this response and go attack, get an army. All right. So we got the NFAT, we got NF-kappa-B, and we got this pathway, which starts with MAP kinases and will go down to some transcription factor. So yeah, all of that makes sense. And so let's say the T cell has got these pathways activated. Uh, is that it? Is that T cell activated now? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> so remember that the successful activation of naive T cells actually requires simultaneous engagement of the TCR and a bunch of co-stimulatory molecules. So let me let me go ahead and tell you about signal two, which coordinates with TCR generated signals in both time and space. Ooh. So before before going into that, I want to know how did the scientists find out about the presence of signal two? Uh, yeah, so, you know, our, our buddies Helen Quill and Ron Schwartz were hanging out in the lab one day, and they noticed that if you saturated T-cells T with MHC stimulation, which they need, the T-cells actually became non-responsive. They didn't do anything. So to activate the T-cells, you needed a whole functioning antigen-presenting cell talking to that T-cell. Why? Well, as it turns out, APCs also give signals from other receptors, which can help change the strength of the signal, as well as tell the T-cell it is okay to be activated. So I'm going to tell you about some of the co-stimulatory receptors, which help to promote robust T-cell activation, and co-inhibitory receptors, which will help to turn down the T-cell activity when it's time for the immune response to cool down. So in this section, I'm going to talk about some co-stimulatory receptors, CD28 and ICOS, and then we also have co-inhibitory receptors, CTLA-4, PD-1, and BTLA. Nice. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. Let's talk about the co-stimulatory ones before we go into the co-inhibitory ones. 
Mm-hmm. So the first one to be discovered was CD28. So all naive and activated human and mouse CD4 T cells have this signal. Um, actually, all mouse CD8 T cells express it, but weirdly, only about half of human CD8 T cells express CD28. Uh, I cannot explain this difference. Anyway, when stimulated in conjunction with other signals, CD28 results in T cell proliferation and survival. Stimulated uh, CD28 recruits this unique kinase called uh, PI through K uh, to activate a series of kinases within the T cell to amplify the signal. This results in production of the pro-survival transcription factor BCL-XL and the uh, pro-proliferation cytokine IL-2. Oh, by the way, do you remember what PITK stood for? It's like some phosphoinositide. I keep forgetting. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> we got it. We got to go Google it. Um, so PI indeed, like- indeed. Yeah, it is phosphoinositide three kinases. Hey, I have I've been looking at this abbreviation for like last for the last five years, and I just <laughs> cannot remember this name. I don't know what's it about it. I, I think anyway. it's because there's a three in the middle of the letters. I don't approve of that. Yeah, I never that's, know how that's, to say it. that's not a good nomenclature. Let's blame it on the whoever came up with this nomenclature. It's clearly that. It's not our inability to remember stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, coming back to our topic. So who is stimulating CD28? I, I understand that it's present on the T cell, but what's its binding partner? And how is this all happening? So... Most antigen-presenting cells, so like mature dendritic cells, activated B cells, and macrophages can express one of two or or two potential ligands for CD28. And both of the proteins that can bind to CD28 uh, belong to something called the B7 family of receptors, and they structurally are part of a larger protein family that actually includes immunoglobulins. So these co-stimulatory ligands are called CD80 and CD86, which are also known as B71 and B72. All of these we names. Are- all of these names. Not, like CD80 and CD86 is not hard enough to remember that you have to remember <laughs> another set of names for these. Well, it's like, and then you got CD4, CD8. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, we also have ICOS, which actually makes sense. That's short for inducible co-stimulator. So ICOS, um, it's actually very closely related to CD28 and in fact binds to another B7 family member called ICOS ligand. Hey, that's so easy to remember. I like it when (laughs) things are named after the things they do, like inducible co-stimulator and nuclear factor of activated T-cells. Just straight to the point. Very easy to remember. (laughs) And uh, it's it's really nice. Uh, the thing that stimulates ICOS is called ICOS ligand. Yes. Also. Oh, so good. Um, <laughs> and Enjoy that while is... this lasts, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. not everything's named like that. Uh, so, so ICOS ligand is also only on activated uh, APCs. So not just any old cell can activate a T cell. ICOS itself is, prob- is only expressed on memory and effector T cells, but not naive cells. And this tells us that CD28 is probably more important for the initiation of T-cell activation, but ICOS is more important for maintaining T-cell activity over time. But you know what? Sometimes you don't want your T-cells to be activated. The immune response should be fast and aggressive to get rid of the threat, 
but it also needs to be tempered to prevent collateral damage to self tissues and chronic autoimmunity. So there's another protein, again, very similar to CD28, and in fact, can also bind CD80 and CD86, but it does the exact opposite. So this protein is called CTLA4, and it antagonizes or inhibits T cell proliferation caused by CD28 stimulation. Um, It's only expressed on the surface of activated T cells two to three days after stimulation and actually has higher binding affinity for its ligands than CD28 does, even though it expresses it at lower levels. So as CD28 signaling increases, so does CTLA-4 expression. And this causes a negative feedback signal that tempers T cell activation to to prevent damage over time. Okay, let me act like a complete ignorant and ask you this question. Cares about T cells doing any damage? How much? I mean, how much damage can this teeny tiny T cell even do? I mean, a lot. As it turns out, mice without CTLA4 expression uh, experience massive proliferation of T cells, which causes a huge increase in the size of their lymph nodes and spleen. It causes profound autoimmunity, and these mice die at just three to four weeks of age, which is like not ideal, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, CTLA-4 is not the only co-inhibitory molecule. We also have something called programmed cell death 1, or PD-1. So PD-1 is expressed on both B and T cells, and it binds two possible ligands, either PD-L1, again, PD ligand 1, or PD-L2, which are both also B7 proteins that are very similar structurally to CD80 and CD86. So PDL2 is expressed mostly on APCs, but you can actually find PDL1 expressed throughout the body, probably to stop T cells from obliterating no- normal tissue during an infection. Interestingly, uh, PD1 interactions may also help guide the differentiation of T regulatory cells to prevent further autoimmunity. You know what, Natalie? We have been talking about autoimmunity a lot on this podcast. Yeah. I, don't think it, I don't think it helps that both of us did our PhD in autoimmunity. Yeah. <laughs> so. Why don't we talk about something else for a change? Let's talk about cancer. How is all of this relevant to cancer? Mm, Yeah, uh, with pleasure. So um, did you know that our immune system is responsible for detecting and eliminating precancerous and cancerous cells? So while that's true, even, even if your cancer has somehow escaped immune surveillance, the tumor itself is also a highly inflammatory environment. So thus, we've got this lively field of cancer immunology that seeks to understand the strange and disturbing immune phenotypes that occur when good cells go bad. As it turns out, T cells that could be fighting the tumor, they they have been fighting so long that they upregulate these co-inhibitory molecules and become way less effective. Moreover, tumors themselves can fool the T cells into becoming less effective by upregulating PDL2. So to solve this problem, Scientists design antibodies against CTLA-4 and PD-1. These treatments, known as immune checkpoint inhibitors, reinvigorate T cells and cause them to take up their arms against cancer once again. This contribution to cancer treatment, like it cannot be understated. It was revolutionary. And in fact, in 2018, Tosuku Hanjo and James Allison were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for the discovery of PD-1 and CTLA-4, leading to the development of checkpoint inhibitors. Today, designing cancer immune therapies that seek to help patients kill their own cancers with their own immune system is a major and very well-funded, hint, hint, area (laughs) of research. Well, let me just emphasize on this that 
the company I work for, the the whole thing is based on checkpoint inhibitors. So mm-hmm. yeah, take a guess of how important this is. Also, hint hint, how well funded this area is. <laughs> yeah, um, my institution as well is like we've got so much money for for working on immuno uh, oncology stuff. So yeah, well yeah, if get it works, into it. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, right. So do we have any more co-inhibitory signals to talk about? Uh, yeah, just one, and this one's like a little different. Uh, the last co-inhibitory molecule I'd like to tell you about is called BTLA, which is B and T lymphocyte um, attenuator. And this receptor can actually ex- be expressed by lots of immune cell types, including you know gamma delta T cells, T regs, NK cells, Max and DCs, and B cells. Um, its ligand, uh, in, in contrast to pretty much everyone else, is not a B7 member. Um, and is instead a member of the TNF receptor family. And that's called HCEM or herpes virus entry mediator, which is weird because that clearly means it does something else, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so regulation of all these co-stimulatory and co-inhibitory molecules is carefully regulated in both space and time. So figuring out when, where, and how these molecules are regulated and what their interplay is, is a huge area of research just waiting to be performed by young scientists such as yourself, listeners, my my beautiful audience. (laughs) Oh, that's very sweet and hopefully very encouraging as well. (laughs) What happens if none of these signals are present? So have you ever had like a constant stressor in your life, but there's like nothing you can do about it, so you just slowly burn out? Um, Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, right. That sounds too close to be real. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out something similar can happen in T cells. If a T cell only has its TCR engaged but nothing else, it becomes totally unresponsive to stimulation. And this is a state we call energy. And I always remember it because it sounds like you don't have uh, energy left. You get <laughs> energy. <Yeah. laughs> it, it works, I promise. Uh, so anergic T cells no longer secrete cytokines. They no longer proliferate. Even though this means that they are functionally useless, this is actually like a really important way that our immune system protects us from autoimmune attack. Remember that an MHC molecule can present all sorts of peptides, both self and non-self. So imagine if you're a little pancreas beta cell and you're presenting your insulin peptides and uh, it's okay. Like because beta cells don't express CD28 or ICOS, if a T cell binds to that MHC on the beta cell, it will just become anergic. It's not going to activate and kill it. So co-inhibitory signals can also induce energy in T cells. And this can contribute to something called exhaustion in T cells, which occurs not only in the tumor microenvironment, which I kind of told you about earlier, but also during chronic infection with things like, you know, HIV, hepatitis, mycobacteria, uh, anything chronic like that. And I know that makes it sound like these changes driving energy are all bad, but anergic T cells are actually really critical to protecting, say, a developing fetus from attack from its own mother's immune system. And actually, some anergic T cells can later become regulatory T cells. So the changes in the T cell, like biochemically, cell biology-wise, that lead to energy and exhaustion are still ongoing areas of research. You know, just from an anthropomorphic perspective i imagine these energetic t-cells as nihilistic people <laughs> <They have laughs> just lost all hope in the society and nothing moves them anymore like, 
Nothing until, matters. Yeah. <laughs> until something will come up and change their mind, which also happens in the immune system, but not the scope of this episode. You're right. You're right. Okay, let's let's take a little break from Signal 2 and move ahead to Signal 3, because I know you have a lot of material prepared to talk about. Signal oh, three. yes. Let's do that. <laughs> I have a lot of material to talk about Signal 3. So while Signal 1 and Signal 2 are typically dependent on T-cells getting in contact with antigen-presenting cells, Signal 3 is unique because it does not require cellular contact. So if they're not touching each other, how is this signal conveyed? This signal is conveyed by cytokines, and cytokines are soluble molecules that can act by binding onto the cognate receptors, which are cytokine receptors, and these are present on a cell that's going to receive these signals. There are many different types of cytokines, many cellular sources of cytokines, many different receptors of cytokines, and many cellular recipients of cytokines. For this section, we're going to talk about some of the cytokines that are relevant to T-cell biology. There's tons of them, but let's start slow. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about interleukin-2, and I guess this might be one of the first cytokines that most people learn about in their career, right? I, so, I would say so, yeah. Clean up on aisle two. Yeah. So, w- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so when the naive T-cell is activated by signal and signal 1 and signal 2, there's a change inside the cell that leads to the transcription of genes for both interleukin-2 and one of its receptor chains, which is IL-2 receptor alpha, which if you are very close to this protein, you can call it CD25, but only if you're close. In fact, it is this NFAT transcription factor that we talked about, nuclear factor of activated T-cells, that is responsible for bringing about this whole chain. So you can now tie up all of this together. Yeah, we just talked about NFAT. That was what NFAT was doing this whole time. Yay. Well, yeah, IL-2 transcription is going to be one of the things that NFAT does. And so we can already start connecting some dots here from signal 1 to signal 3. Anyway, let's come back to IL-2. The transcriptional changes induced by the first two signals, and they also help in increasing the stability of IL-2 mRNA so that less of it's getting degraded and more of it can be translated to a functional cytokine protein. This results in about a hundred times increase in IL-2 production by the activated T-cell. The IL-2 that is secreted by the activated T-cells can act on the same T-cell or a nearby activated T-cell that is also expressing the IL-2 receptor. This interaction eventually leads to the proliferation of T-cells. So uh, am I understanding this right? The T-cell makes IL-2 and its receptor, but it also receives the IL-2 that it produced to proliferate. Yes, that is correct. And this type of signaling where a signal is produced and received by the same cell is called autocrine signaling in uh, comparison to paracrine signaling where the producer and the receivers are neighbors but not the same cells. Now, autocrine signaling is like patting yourself on the back. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, can can this IL-2 lead to proliferation of other T-cells that aren't activated? Yeah, that could be if they also express the IL-2 receptor. Now, the fun thing here is, since the expression of IL-2 receptor is also dependent on activation, the process somewhat limits itself. It's preventing off-target T-cell proliferation. 
And if anybody wants to know more about the specific requirements of IL-2 in follicular and non-follicular T-cells, Bodyso 10 is the place to go where we talked about this paper where different dynamics of IL-2 signaling between different subtypes of T-cells is discussed. Mm, that's a, a nice subtle plug there for, for other things in the <laughs> antibodies universe. In, yeah. the, in the antibodies universe. I'm telling you, it's going to be the big thing in future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was subtle indeed. And you know, one interesting part, that paper was suggested to us by Eugenio when Eugenio was not a part of the podcast. <laughs> oh, nice. So, yeah, so he was the one who commented on a post that, hey, you should discuss this paper. And then we thought, yeah, that's an interesting paper. Let's talk about it. Now that you have been introduced to your first ever cytokine, IL-2, let's look at a group of cytokines called polarizing cytokines, uh, classified based on their polarizing function. Uh, these cytokines turn activated T-cells into specialists that can handle specific type of pathogens. Because uh, this is not Lord of the Rings. There is no one T-cell to rule them all. Nice. The <laughs> specialization is required to deal with pathogens effectively. So uh, can you give me some examples of polarizing cytokines? Well, we can't go too deep into polarizing cytokines for this episode because, you know, time is a thing. But mm. I can surely give you two examples. IL-12 that looks sounds like IL-2, but very different, is one of the polarizing cytokines that is typically produced by antigen-presenting cells. What IL-12 does is it arms the activated T-cells to fight against intracellular pathogens like uh, an intracellular bacteria or viruses, and it can also help the cells defend against cancers. Then there is interleukin-4 that helps T-cells in specializing against extracellular pathogens. Okay, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what else should I know about these T-cell activating signals? Yeah, well, let me tell you about the antigen-presenting cells that provide the co-simulatory signal, that is, signal 2 to the T-cells. See, we talked about antigen-presenting cells providing the signal 2, but what we did not talk about is the context. The interesting thing here is that APCs do not always express the co-stimulatory signals. Can you guess what triggers them to express this co-stimulatory signal? I, I have no idea, but I think it must be associated with the attackers, right? Yes, it is. So it's the cell death associated molecules and microbial products that we call BAMPs and DAMPs. These molecules use the pattern recognition receptors on the APCs to warn them about a dangerous situation. And the APCs go like, oh, I should probably tell the T-cells about this. Here, let me express some co-stimulatory molecules as I also present on my MHC some of this microbial garbage I recently picked up. Nice. Well, uh, we have talked extensively about PAMPs and uh, PRRs in our innate immunity section. So that that's another episode plug. Uh, if you <laughs> haven't listened to our episodes on innate immunity, like... Seriously, what are you doing with your life? Uh, check that out because it'll be a great base to understand how adaptive immunity builds up on those really quick innate immune reactions. So uh, anyway, yeah, let's come back to this episode. Yes, innate immunity is a great dinner table topic and I 100% recommend it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you see, the PAMs or DAMs provide a contextual signal to the APCs that the T-cells find out through the co-stimulation signal. 
this is really amazing. The APCs are making sure that the T cells are only activated in the right context and not just because they found a random piece of antigen. Yeah, T cells are so deadly that the whole process is built around making sure that they're absolutely needed before calling them into action. In fact, the process of polarizing cytokine secretion, that is signal 3, apart from IL-2, is also controlled by PAMs. When APCs received PAMs, they make cytokines like IL-4 and IL-12. So what I'm hearing is it's actually these microbial products that are indirectly guiding the whole signal 2 and signal 3. That is right. In fact, the microbial products also guide the signal 1. How is that? By upregulating the expression of class 2 MHCs and also class 1 MHCs sometimes. The more class 2 MHCs there, the more foreign peptides can be expressed on it and the more visibility this APC has towards T cells. That's, that's amazing. All three of these signals tie back to these microbial products. Yes. And com- talking about microbial products, the last thing I want to mention is there's a unique type of signal that is called super antigens. Super antigens. Do these come from the planet of Krypton and wear a cape? And Natalie, you know, the, it's because of jokes like these that we are losing audience. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that would make immunology a lot more interesting if they were, wore capes. But the answer is no. They don't come from Krypton. They're called super antigens because they bind to a OVB region, variable beta region of the T-cell receptor and the alpha region of the MHC class 2 molecules. By doing so, they are cross-linking the TCR and MHC so that T-cell thinks it's getting activated because it is binding very strongly to the MHC class 2 and its contents, which would be a foreign peptide. But in reality, it's just a non-specific interaction that is mediated by the presence of this cross-linking superantigen. As you would expect, this causes non-specific T-cell activation, and that can be scary. Uh, does this bypass signal 2 and 3? Luckily, no, because if that happened, I, I, would, <laughs> I think this would be super <laughs> duper deadly. It is still deadly for the fact that it's already bypassing signal 1. But yeah, signal 2 and signal 3 are still required uh, for the T-cell to be activated. Okay, um, now I'm really scared of super antigens. Can you tell me what they look like so I can keep an eye out? Yeah, sure. Uh, Some of these can be bacterial products. Let's take the example of staphylococcal enterotoxins that are released by staphylococcus bacteria. Some super antigens can also be endogenous, meaning they arise coded from within our own genome in air quotes. Uh, You know, you say air quotes on own genome. This is a podcast, so you can't really see that. So uh, could you explain the the own genome thing here? The reason I say it, quote unquote, our own genome is that these super antigens are coded by the viral elements that have become integrated into our genomes. So they're technically now part of us, but not really. One such endogenous super antigen is the membrane protein encoded by mouse memory tumor virus DNA in inbred mouse strains. And this produces a protein called minor lymphocyte stimulating determinant, which acts as super antigens. I 
what is the benefit for coding such a thing that just sets T cells on a rampage? Well, immune response generally is bad for survival of the pathogens. I'm guessing what the super antigen is doing here is preventing a coordinated immune response from mounting uh, by just indiscriminately activating the T cells. Think of it as trying to fight a cockroach infestation in your house using an assault rifle. Uh, the cockroach would prefer that to a can of anti-bug spray because it just has a better chance of surviving that. Wow, man. You know, it really is like a bacteria's world and we're just living in it. They're yeah. so much smarter than us. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So uh, that's crazy. Um now I want to know more about uh, the polarized flavors of T-cells and what they do. Let's leave that one for the next episode because that's a whole can of worms there with helper T-cell subtypes and all of their functions. Whew, we've already discussed too much for this one. Uh, Natalie, can you summarize what all we have discussed today for all of our listeners who might have slept for the first 58 minutes that we have been discussing this? Okay, okay, okay. So uh, today, we took some time to talk about naive T-cells and their activation. So here are some nice little bullet points for you. So once you leave the thymus, the T-cell, the naive T-cells are in constant circulation until they encounter their cognate antigen. So finding that antigen is the first part of the T-cell activation process. And this whole process requires three signals. So signal one is that T-cell receptor, TCR, getting in contact with the peptide on an MHC complex, and that's presented on the surface of an antigen-presenting cell or APC. So signal one leads to the activation of a signal transduction cascade. That's all that phosphorylation we talked about that ends up with the activation of two important transcription factors, NF-kappa-B and MAPK signaling, which induce T-cell survival, proliferation, and differentiation into effector cells. There's also NFAT involved there. Uh, we can never forget NFAT. Never forget NFAT. <laughs> <laughs> then there's also signal two. It requires co-stimulatory receptors on the T cell, like CD28, to get in contact with its co-stimulatory ligand, like CD80 or CD86, that are expressed on the surface of antigen-presenting cells. So the last signal is signal three, and that's provided by soluble cytokines that are produced by either the T cell or the APCs. And this signal induces T-cell proliferation, and it plays a key role in T-cell polarization, which is just the fancy word for telling the T-cell what is its new job profile. So different cells can function as antigen-presenting cells. This includes macrophages, B-cells, dendritic cells, uh, even though we know that dendritic cells are just the best. They are the best APCs, but there are other oh, yes. ones. Yeah, yeah. dendritic uh, cells are the... <laughs> I'd say they are the top one percentile of <laughs> in their yeah. abilities. Like they are the best of the best. Everybody else is just trying to get there, trying to get that much education and experience so that one day they could be like the genetic cell, but mm. they would never be. The DC is just that good at presenting cells. I mean, presenting antigens. Yeah, dendritic cells is like Walmart and like a B cell trying to present you an antigen is like a guy trying to sell you in a back, sell you something in a back alley. You're like, I don't want this. Okay. <laughs> anyway, do you have anything uh, else you want to add before we wrap this up? No, I think we have talked a lot about activation and this is a good primer so far. 
All right. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Jatin, for talking about T-cells with me today. Uh, for our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I am your host, Natalie, signing off until you meet again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.